Hi, I'm Dr. Akiva Down. And I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And welcome to Interesting Questions. In this podcast, we'll be addressing issues that are philosophical, religious, and psychological in nature, and exploring some of the deeper questions as we go into Season 2. We will be focusing on that which is considered to be controversial, and there may not be a right or wrong answer. So we are hoping that our discussions will yield more questions for your Shabbos table. All right, Akiva, welcome to our Purim episode. One of the themes of Purim is v'nehefochu, the idea that uh, we turn things around. And so I thought for this episode it would be great if I was the doctor and you were the rabbi. Unfortunately, I think my medical advice is limited to uh, feed a cold, starve a fever, and don't eat yellow snow. So I'm not sure that would work. Alternatively, I thought maybe we would do something we don't normally do, which is to study some midrash. And looking specifically at the midrash connected to um, the Megillah, and uh, maybe trying to put some reason into the Midrash, uh, as unusual as that might be for us. And so I've picked a couple of Midrashim. Anybody who wants to follow along, these are in Gemara Megillah on Daf Yudbet, Amud Aleph, page 12a, and then going on to 12b. So I'm going to share what the, what the Midrash says, and then we'll, we'll discuss. <clears throat> so, uh, in this particular case, the, fir- the first Midrash we'll look at is um, talking about King Ahasuerus and the party that he has at the very beginning of the Megillah, um, before he gets into any trouble with Vashti or anything else. This is the very beginning. He says, uh, when he displayed the riches of his glorious kingdom, Rabbi Yossi Bar Chanina said, Scripture teaches that Achashverosh donned priestly garments at this occasion. For it is written here, the honor of his splendor, meaning Tiferet is the Hebrew word, it was great. And is written here for glory and for splendor, Tiferet. Thus, they use the word Tiferet to intimate that at this feast, Achashverosh adorned himself with the raiments of the Kohen Gadol, which had been looted from the temple during the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is a theme that we're going to see over and over again, the idea that Achashverosh used items from the Beit HaMikdash in his party. And so the question I want to throw your way, Akiva, is when people have these lavish parties, right? we talk about that sometimes... Uh, What's the right word? They're, they're trying to make up for something. They're trying to compensate. compensate, right? And so I was hoping you you might talk to us about how Ahasuerus might be compensating um, through this party and perhaps some of the other things that we'll be reading about later in terms of some of his uh, physical or sexual exploits. So that was... Quite, quite a question, and I'm just going to begin with, you know, Avi, you, you are a doctor as well. You have your doctorate in education, which may not make you qualified for medical advice, but certainly makes you more of a doctor than it makes me a rabbi. 
So I do appreciate us not switching roles because I would certainly be at a significant disadvantage. That being said, the idea of somebody compensating for something. Um, you know, I'm going to start off with uh, quoting the great Mel Brooks, who said, it's good to be the king. Uh, the truth is, is that likely King Achashverosh, who was a king, who I believe we believe was a king by marriage, not by blood, nevertheless was king. And kings don't really have to prove anything, except maybe to other kings, but certainly not to people who are guests in their home, presumably. That being said, I do think that there's a possibility that being that he wasn't a king by blood and instead was just married to royalty, perhaps he constantly felt unqualified and uh, like he had to prove himself to be accepted. By whom, we never hear, because we never really know who all the guests are at the party. Uh, for all we know, his in-laws were not there, in which case, who is he proving himself to? And either way, why is he proving himself potentially in some of the ways he tries to prove himself to his in-laws? That's creepy and for another day, or possibly later, depending on what you decide to ask. Uh, nevertheless, so when people need to compensate for something... Well, we have many, many jokes that go along with that. And I'll let you all imagine for a moment many of those jokes. But we do know that people generally do have insecurities. And where they have insecurities, they tend to struggle and feel a need to compensate for those insecurities. And most of the time, they overcompensate. It's very rare to have uh, someone who is inherently feeling insecure, less than, go about things in a proper, I can do this way, because if they felt they could do that, they probably wouldn't be trying to compensate in the first place. So why is Achashverosh putting on things that are not de descriptive of who he is? Well, certainly interesting that we know that someone who married into and therefore is not by blood royalty is also not a Kohen. And so it's very interesting that as he puts one, as he takes off one hat of something where he potentially has not earned or been born into that right, it's interesting that he would choose to put on clothing of another where, again, he was neither born nor earned. You can't really earn being a Kohen, but you also certainly can't be, you, you can't upgrade. You know, even if you are a gare and you convert, you don't get to convert into the priestly ranks. Uh, you're with the rest of us, the commoners. So it, it kind of is interesting that these, both these hats would potentially be neither what he fits. And that's often what we see when somebody's trying to compensate for anything. They try to do so in such a way that they still don't fit. And then they don't feel right just the same. And we see that one snowballs into another, into another, into another, never finding that level of security that they are inherently looking for. So that's the long-winded answer as to overcompensation without any uh, jokes. Uh, but again... There's plenty to think of. 
I thought you were going to tell the joke about uh, the guy who wants to be a Kohen and offers to pay more and more money. And finally, the rabbi says, I don't understand. Why do you want to be a Kohen so bad? My father was a Kohen. My grandfather was a Kohen. I want to be a Kohen too. See, Avi, that's why you're the rabbi and I'm not, because I was thinking of very different jokes. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so just a, a few more midrashim that connect us to uh, this imposter syndrome that um, that Ahasuerus might have been feeling. right? So it says that he had his guests lie upon silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. And it's taught in Abraisa by Rabbi Yehuda that there were different couches. Some of them were gold and some were silver, and that those guests who were worthy of silver were assigned to silver couches, and those who were worthy of gold were assigned to gold couches. Rabbi Nehemiah says, but if so, he would have... Uh, he would have caused strife between them and jealousy between them. And therefore, rather, they were silver with legs of gold. And the Megillah continues and talks about all of the uh, pavement that, was, that they were placed upon and that the, the pavement was uh, paved with stones uh, that were not easily obtained. In fact, they say these were stones of a crown obtainable after many trials uh, from all over the land. So in other words, even the, the road was paved with precious stones. Uh, and that the goblets were served in gold goblets, the goblets being diverse from one another. In other words, that each cup was different one from the next. Uh, and, and then the Gemara says, according to Rava, a heavenly voice issued forth and said to them, your predecessors, meaning Balchazar, were destroyed because you used the vessels of the Holy Temple, and you repeat their mistake by also drinking from them. So here again, right? we are putting Ahasuerosh into this light where he seems to want to be either like his predecessors and or to, to use the temple vessels uh, for his own making. So, Avi, I'm going to have you put on a different hat to answer this question. But, uh, you know, I can't help but hearing that he put his guests on very uncomfortable couches, paved the road wastefully, and um, had mismatched dinnerware. So I'd like you to put on your married for several decades at this point and... Tell us about how it could be that someone would be impressed by mismatched dinnerware. Well, I will start by saying I am certainly no slave to fashion and have no sense of that. But it would. But you know how to make your wife happy. Uh, but it, right. But it would. But it would seem to me that again, while this may be an acceptable look, quote unquote, it really strikes me as. Again, number one, a way to show off. And number two, there seem to be sort of separate um, separate events for men and for women, at least for a while. Um, and so maybe the men didn't care about what things looked like. Um, but it seems to me that they just, they, they, he wanted to show off the most lavish items that he had, even if they were not particularly well-matched or comfortable. The other 
piece, I guess, is going back to what you stated earlier, that we, we know he was not born into wealth, right? We know that sometimes the nouveau riche like to show off their wealth, even if it seems gaudy or ostentatious. Um, and so maybe you'll, you'll piggyback on that at some point, but uh, maybe he was just much more concerned with showing off what he had um, than with fashion, style, appropriateness. And so with that, we'll jump into the next set of Midrashim. Right? It says, And royal wine in abundance that he provided. And Rab says the quantity is meant the Megillah should have said much wine. So why does it instead say in abundance? Since it states that each individual was served wine that was greater than him in years. In other words, if somebody was 30 years old, they were served wine that was more than 30 years old. If they were 70 years old, they would be served wine that was more than 70 years old. And so I'm, I'm going to turn it back to you, Akiva, and say, tell us more about this. What, what causes people to want to have an ostentatious party or to, to present themselves in this, in this ostentatious way? So I first want to make sure that, you know, we differentiate between those who are just genuinely generous and kind and want to have a fun time. Um, there's nothing wrong with, I think, wanting to, you know, spend money on your friends and have a good time and, and play and, and share your greatest, uh, the gifts that you have to share them with, with friends and loved ones and people who you care about. There's nothing wrong with that. I think what, and, and I'm actually going to pass it back to you, Avi, but I think the, what the really this Midrash we keep hearing time and again is more and more examples of how this particular individual was not just trying to have a generous and fun time. I almost think back to when we think about Shmini Yatzeret and the fact that you know the whole idea behind Shmini Yatzeret is we get one more day with HaKadosh Baruch we get an opportunity, a special time that doesn't include the rest of the nations, that's just for us, and here we have this juxtaposition, which, by the way, Shemini Yatzeret, it's relatively simple, it's, you know, you're pretty full by then, so you might have, you know, some nice meals, but, but it's really not something that's ostentatious, and yet it's a celebration with us and our Creator, and juxtapose that to this guy who's got to have everything and show off with everything and serve vinegar to his guests and, in, in mismatched cups. But it, the Midrash says it multiple times. Is there obvious significance to the number of times or the uh, almost one-upping of uh, what we see in this Midrash? So... I think there are two pieces. There is the part that is literally found in the Megillah, which is trying to talk about this outstandingly ostentatious party that's just way over the top. 
Um, and I think that's in part to compare it to the parties that will happen later um, when, when um, Esther asks to have a party with the king, and it's a very small private party, right? Um, and this also is sort of establishes the, the scene, if you will, right? This is the beginning of the book, the beginning of the movie, where we're trying to learn who are these characters and how did they get here and what are they doing and what's their personality like. And so the Megillah is giving us context all at once um, and giving us context for who Achashverosh is. At the same time, the Midrash goes to great lengths to really vilify him and really say that what he was doing was that he was an anti-Semite, anti-Jewish, uh, really a, a Jew hater from the beginning. Um, and that, you know, he was going out there and not only was he being ostentatious with his party, but he was using the items from the Beit HaMikdash specifically to sort of flaunt things into people's faces. Um, and so I'm, I, I think the rabbis may be layering some of their own feelings about kingship and the ruling party onto the story of, of uh, Ahasuerus himself. Okay, so to move on, we are now at the second part. We're going to be introduced to Queen Vashti. And the Megillah continues, and Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal house of King Ahasuerus. The Megillah should have said that Vashti's banquet took place in the women's house, which was a more private location, not frequented by men. Rava said, both Ahasuerus and Vashti intended to commit immoral acts. Therefore, Vashti's feast was held in the king's house in close proximity to the men. And so goes the popular adage, and here's an adage I'm sure you've heard and used many times, Akiva, he with large pumpkins and his wife with small pumpkins, i.e. the evil man and his wife both engage in the same behavior. So here you can see that the Midrash is setting up Ahasuerosh not only as someone with anti-Semitic intent and feelings of uh, inadequacy perhaps or a need to, to show off, but also someone who is immoral and, uh, and, and prepared to, to publicly be immoral with his wife. And so the Megillah continues. On the seventh day, when the king's heart was merry with wine, um, and Rav says the seventh day was Shabbat, on which the difference in behavior between Jews and idolaters is pronounced. For when Jews eat and drink, discussing words of Torah and words of praise to Hashem, but the idolaters who eat and drink begin discussing only indecent matters. And so it was at the feast that the wicked one, meaning Ahasuerosh, that they began discussing indecent matters. These would say that the Median women are the most beautiful, while these others would say that the Persian women are most beautiful. And so Ahasuerus said to them, the vessel that I use, also an interesting phrase, right, as opposed to my wife, Vashti is neither Median nor Persian, but Chaldean. Yet she is the most beautiful woman. 
Is it your wish to see her? They said to him, yes, provided that she will be naked. And so this is the, the introduction in the Midrash of that piece where we talk about, well, why didn't Vashti want to come down? Because she was going to be naked. Right? And if she was the one who had truly been born into uh, the, the royalty, either on the one hand she might feel that this was inappropriate, or alternatively she might have been on board with this, and then the Midrash is going to exp- have to explain why she didn't come down. But at this point... I'm going to turn it back over to you, and I don't want to get too much into the thought process of those who might perform immoral acts in public, physically between husband and wife. But I'm hoping you're going to be able to share at least some light with us on why people feel it might be acceptable to go against societal norms in public. Trying to figure out what exactly you're asking me, I, I w- Well, if if Vashti was supposed to come down naked, right, <clears throat> and let's propose that she was willing, and that they were going to both have pumpkins and get involved in some sort of immoral act, what what goes through somebody's head as they are doing this? Why why would people do this if this is not societally sanctioned. Ah, so you're asking about exhibitionism. Okay. Why somebody might be an exhibitionist? Well, you know, it's interesting, because they would argue, presumably, and please, if you happen to be an exhibitionist, listening in and want to kind of comment, would love to hear what you have to say. Um, I think that in general, people who are exhibitionists, in part, don't think that what they're doing is in any way unacceptable. I think that their mindset in many ways may be, well, you're a prude, and therefore, I'm just doing what's natural. And I think the big question is, is where do we draw the line as to what's natural? And, and that brings up an entirely different set of questions because physical acts between two consenting individuals are natural. does not mean that they get done in public. And, and there's certainly that you know, question of, is this a red herring? How far do we, do we go in this you know, structured route? Because we've had people who talk about breastfeeding in public and this isn't really a question as to whether or not one finds it acceptable or unacceptable but the fact is is that is it a natural act yes it is mothers feed their babies and if they happen to be nursing it's generally done through breastfeeding so then of course the question is is well what what is the level what is the level of modesty versus this is something natural, you shouldn't be staring. Um, 
everybody has their own line and everybody has a different idea of what is or is not acceptable. And I think that, again, going back to the original exhibitionist idea, the question really is, do they feel that what they're doing is just part of that spectrum and still acceptable and other people should accept that natural behaviors are natural? Or is this a purposeful attempt to either try and challenge and or just completely violate social norms? Uh, which, depending on your viewpoint, you could be argued theoretically for both. I happen to think that in this case, probably what we're talking about is a number of factors. One is we have two individuals who, from the start, before the party began, may have had the intention of, it's okay, we can be exhibitionists, and we're inviting a bunch of voyeurs, which would be the people who like watching exhibitionists, um, or just watching a something that generally is private become public. Um, I believe, and Avi, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if it's Midrash or if it's text or if it's somewhere in between. Uh, David Amelech, I believe, fell in love with his wife. I, I heard that, again, I don't know if it's a Midrash or not, that she was bathing at the time where he saw her. Well, that's in the text. Okay, so right, so we have right there a someone who we very much have significant schut um, for, who that was something voyeuristic theoretically. So again, I think that shows that spectrum, right? Because we can say, well, David Amelech certainly was not an immoral or depraved individual. Um, at least we would On like to say that, right? And at the same time, he was still a king, and kings sort of get to do whatever they want. As Mel Brooks again said, it's good to be the king. Uh, he said it twice, too, so it's okay that I said it twice. Um, but suffice it to say, we have a king and queen who have an intention to do something that they say it's okay. Uh, we also have a factor of there is clearly wine flowing freely and alcohol uh, I don't know that we can say that alcohol amongst just Jews leads only to discussions of Torah, because I think that there's that moderation piece as well, because when we moderate our alcohol use, then yes, it can still be certainly engaged in wonderful and meaningful speech. And I think after drinking for a week straight be hard-pressed to find anyone who their tongue is flowing freely with words of Torah, more likely they are also becoming more potentially depraved. Um, so I think that that's certainly a factor in this case as well, and we see that. Uh, Avi, the question I have for you is, so they're in Persia, and we said that Vashti was the royal bloodline. This says Vashti wasn't Persian. Help me out with that. So there's a couple of options. One option is that she was um, <clears throat> not Persian because the seat of the throne was in Persia, but the king didn't necessarily come from Persia. Perhaps he had been Chaldean, her father, in other words. The other option is 
that she had been the wife of the previous king. And when that king died and she remarried, that Ahasuerus became the king. So then neither of them would have theoretically been, been... Been born royalty. Which might explain some of the behavior. Could. Not suggesting that kings and queens behave... Always, uh, in, the, always in the most uh, uh, moral right. way. Although we, we do have an example in our time of a queen who certainly was, in her time, very well behaved. Sure. From, from what we understand, that's a shout out to anyone who is, of course, fans oh, oh, of... Oh, fans of the British monarchy? Indeed. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to jump in with the next Midrash because it talks about her behavior. Right? And it says, this is really mida keneged mida, the measure versus measure. In other words, uh, what's getting what you give. Because it says, why was she required to show up naked? Uh, this teaches that the wicked Vashti used to bring Jewish girls and have them be naked and make them work on Shabbat. Therefore, as her punishment from Hashem, she was ordered by Ahasuerus to appear naked on Shabbat. And thus it is written, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed upon her. As she had done to Jewish girls, so it was decreed upon her. And I think this is a great example of the way Midrash brings a story to really teach a lesson. I'm not sure it's meant for us to really believe and be committed to the idea that Vashti was going to be forced to be naked or that this took place on Shabbat or that it was because she forced Jewish girls to show up and, and work on Shabbat, but rather it's here to teach the idea of mida keneged mida, the idea of measure for measure, that what you give is what you get. And so we now get to one of the most famous parts of the story. And Queen Vashti refused. Now let us see. She was a lewd woman, says the Midrash. As the master said, both Ahasuerus and Vashti intended to act immorally. If so, what is the reason she did not come when Ahasuerus ordered her to appear naked? Rabbi Yossi Bar Chanina said, this teaches that she broke out in leprosy, so she did not want to appear naked. In Abraisa, a different reason why she did not want to appear naked was taught. The angel Gavriel came and made her grow a tail. And the verse concludes, so the king became greatly incensed by her refusal. So, here too, I want to suggest that the Midrash is teaching something that is meant to be more metaphorical than literal. The idea that she was leprosy, so Akiva, you may recall from when we were doing Torah, leprosy is connected with speaking Lashon Hara. And so it may have been that in some ways we're supposed to think that Vashti did Lashon Hara, or this idea that she grew a tail may be connected to the idea that she was about to act in some sort of animalistic manner. And so the angel came down and said, well, if you're going to act animalistic, we'll make you look animalistic. And, uh, and I think the Midrash, again, is trying to connect those concepts to the Midrash. 
Why Gavriel? Why the angel Gavriel? That's a good question. I'm not sure I know enough about the different angels and their jobs to be able to opine on that. So I'm going to leave it as a question for, for us to, to perhaps address in the future. We'll have to do some more research. And so the king became greatly incensed by her refusal. And why did his anger burn within him so much? Rava said, because Vashti sent him a message. She says, you stable boy of my father. My father drank wine, the equivalent of what a thousand people would drink, and did not get drunk. Whereas the man, meaning you, Ahasuerus, became foolish from his wine. Upon hearing his insult, immediately his anger burned within him. So here again, she's saying he's a stable boy somehow she ended up marrying and this may again go to his feelings of inadequacy and so I think that hits most of the pieces of Midrash I wanted us to address Akiva but I was hoping you might wrap it up with just sort of maybe this is a little too too much turning the the uh, psychoanalytic eye on ourselves. But why might we feel the need to make Ahasuerus and Vashti so anti-Semitic in order, rather than just making them immoral lushes? When we talk about the Ness of Purim, it's really something that you can easily misconstrue as being just a bunch of people defending themselves. And it kind of takes away from the glory of the Ness. This guy, he wanted to kill us, and we were given permission to defend ourselves. We did. We won. Hooray. Haman, his sons, all on the gallows. If you'd like to know how tall, please ask a five-year-old. Uh, the, the Ness is, is a big deal, and I'm wondering if, in part, the way to... The, the way that the... That, that Chazal was trying to bolster the, the glory of such a miracle may have been to try and really fully vilify the players in the beginning, right? So we have this idea of, no, it wasn't just Achashverosh was a lush, it wasn't just Vashti was full of herself, it wasn't that they intended to do something immoral. In fact, you should know that Achashverosh was so filled with hate that even when he was at a party, he made sure to be insensitive and offensive. And Vashti was so full of herself that even though she intended to do something immoral, at the last minute, she changed her mind all because she had a tail. Uh, and how much more miraculous is it then that this terrible, terrible, vile human being got rid of Vashti and found this wonderful, as, as we would, would be made to believe and were made to believe as children, this wonderful, innocent, pure, young Jewish woman who had nothing 
No, not a blemish on her. Right? We know we know that the likelihood that uh, what happened was a simple pageant, and then, you know, Esther walked out in her in her full uh, modest clothes, and Achashverosh was stunned and then gave in, uh, is probably not likely. There was much more debauchery likely that ensued. and But we ignore that, because again, how much more is it that he fell in love with this innocent, unblemished, young, young Jewish lady? And then she convinced him, this vile, anti-Semitic ruler who cared nothing but him, for himself and showing off how amazing he was, she convinced him, by the way, hang your viceroy and his sons and send a message that says that the Jews can defend themselves. Uh, I, I think that it's an exaggeration because an exaggeration teaches, in this case, better than a reality. It's not... We don't know whether it's right or wrong, or certainly I don't. Um, and we don't know which parts were exaggerations and which parts were not. But I think that the fact is clear that there are times where we really want to make sure that we glorify the lesson that needs to be taught. And the lesson, of course, is that we should have faith. And not only should we have faith, but we need to take action. We need to work towards goals. We can't just sit by and, as we talked about last week, we can't just pray and, and daven and say, let's... Hope, we have to take action. We learned this from Pirkei Avot. And so what do we have to do? We have to take action. We have to make things happen. And how are we going to do this? Well, let's have a, a, a lesson that maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration, but no one is left uncertain of whether or not the t they, they know at the end what should be done and what the stakes were. So I think sometimes that's the point of an exaggeration. It's not, it's not about the exaggeration. It's about making sure that no person leaves without knowing the lesson. And I think if that's the case, then the lesson is clear. It means always stand up. It doesn't matter how, uh, how much you think that the odds are against you. May the odds forever be in your favor. And so that brings us to uh, maybe not our Shabbos table question, but maybe our Purim Suda question. And so the Purim Suda question I would encourage you to ask, as unfortunately we've seen some anti-Semitic events around the country recently, in what ways can you safely stand up for the Jewish people, show your pride in the Jewish people, and put out there the positive messages of the Jewish people to combat this hatred. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.